Welcome back to Speculative Futures. This is your host, Michael Phillips Moskowitz. And this, we admit, just to set expectations, is really the hardest and most sensitive episode in the series. It was certainly the hardest to produce. There's a lot of pain. Israelis and Palestinians aren't just suffering from extraordinary hardships or even from existential dread attributable to decades of war and terrorism, but from epigenetic trauma, psychological and even physiological issues caused by generations of violence and in some cases, centuries of exile. Now, there are known wounds, including physical injury and psychological wounds, which people deal with often invisibly every day and in every community, in all age, and in all ethnic groups. But there appear to be even deeper wounds that need to be dealt with outside of the normal political or social discourse. This is where what we call epigenetic trauma fits in. In biology, epigenetics is the study of heritable phenotype changes that do not involve alterations in the DNA sequence. The Greek prefix epi, meaning over, outside of, or around, implies that these features are on top of, or in addition to, the traditional genetic basis for inheritance. And this kind of trauma is unique. We're gonna learn more about it in this episode. We're also gonna figure out why these are not so easy to solve. There's certainly no cheap or scalable vaccine program, and there is no aerosolized version you can spray or disperse in a crowd. But what we'll try to do in the next hour is borrow from case studies and conflict resolution, and epigenetics, and the treatment of PTSD, hoping to sketch or scaffold a multilateral approach that could work successfully at scale. And we'll try to identify instruments and scenarios, proven or at least possible, to help heal what are often invisible wounds. Proposed solution. Remember, this series is designed, written, and read as a project in parallel to politics. It's not a political manifesto, it's simply permission to imagine a different and more desirable future and just maybe trigger a trophic cascade or what's more commonly understood as a butterfly effect. The idea that by changing one minute element or shedding light on a new perspective, you could inspire what Earth scientists call a tectonic shift in the environment. Now, I should mention that as a Jew currently living in, writing from, and reading this in Germany, just 11 kilometers or for you Americans, less than seven miles away from one of at least three local concentration camps, just 76 years after the Holocaust, I know that healing is possible. Or, to place it more personally in context, I recently visited a doctor for lower back pain. I went to the dentist too, but that was like any other dentist, the strangest assortment of art on earth. But the doctor's office, which was more stylish than anything you'd find in the States or in the UK or even in Israel, knew my name, saw my face. And remember, I kind of make Mark Marin look like Dolph Lundgren. There's no hiding that I'm a Jew. It's pretty obvious. But getting treated there in a private room by not one, but by two German practitioners was really sort of a moment. Every day I walk past the Stolperstein or the, the gold stumbling stones, memorializing Jewish residents of Hamburg removed from their homes and later murdered in death camps every day on my way to the office. That is haunting, but it's also evidence that healing can occur and change can happen. And in Israel, and in Palestine, like in Germany 76 years ago, 
The technical details of a piece can be ironed out at the highest levels, but it requires public understanding and education and consensus to fully cement, and it may take generations to shift beliefs. But as I've seen and felt, literally with people's hands on my body, and as many other people can attest when they look around, look at Germany, it can be done. First, a bit of background. It's tempting to provide a comprehensive history of the ancient or even the modern Middle East, but that would be the subject of several books and even several podcasts. It's simply too demanding to cover here. We have started from Oslo and moved forward. And it warrants, once again, briefly recapping what happened with Oslo, why it didn't work, and then moving forward by identifying Oslo's failure to fully account for epigenetic trauma. Remember, Oslo cultivated very high expectations, high hopes, and there were Herculean efforts made to push it across the finish line. There were also massive expectations, which never materialized in an end to the conflict. And what I personally remember in the year 2000 was the final push at Camp David. In fact, I asked Dennis Ross about it, one of the lead Middle East negotiators, just three weeks after the peace conference ended inconclusively. He had just left the Clinton administration and joined the Washington Institute for Near East Policy where I was working, and he said, it wasn't a Hail Mary pass that was dropped. Instead, they handed the running back the ball, in his words, on the five-yard line, with plenty of blocking and tackling, and a massive hole to run through. And instead of scoring a touchdown, he just sat down on the field while time ran out. Now, that's just one perspective, true, but many people report or recall a very real reluctance, which you might consider legitimate, for Arafat and others to be remembered by history, not as peacemakers, but as traitors abandoning their core cause, and they would not betray the people they spent their lives trying to defend. It's fair, but the thing is, the Oslo peace process was a massive, nearly decade-long diplomatic undertaking and a colossal legal encumbrance. But it wasn't a particularly thoughtful or programmatic reconciliation process between people. The assumption was that peace would come later, that you had to end the conflict first. Well, critical preparations were not or ever properly made or prioritized. Ed Lutvak, a strategist and historian known for his works on geoeconomics, military history, and international relations, and the author of Coup d'État, A Practical Handbook, once stated that in the negotiating process, or at least in a process between parties with asymmetric power, quote, settlement building and terrorism were each legitimate tools of negotiation. That's pretty shocking. But according to Litvak, these were each tools of leverage. What was not, in Litvak's estimation, ever legitimate were public pledges by the then PA president, Yasser Arafat, to never compromise and never give in, to never end the conflict. In essence, he was preventing himself and his people from ever completing that process. He was tying his own hands. You might remember David Makovsky from the Washington Institute in earlier episodes. He had some thoughts to share on the subject. You know, there are people certainly on the right in Israel who talk about the failure of Oslo, but what they don't take into account is the fact that it has withstood all these shocks to the region, whether it's terrorism, 
uh, intifada, a second intifada, the death of Arafat, the stagnation of the Palestinian Authority, the split with Hamas, uh, the fact that Bibi Netanyahu has been the prime minister for most of his time. If you would have asked anyone, Netanyahu, who was, you know, was a, a virulent critic of Oslo before he came to office, that under his tenure, Oslo would remain and uh, the, the institutional links would deepen. I don't think anybody would believe you. So what, what, what we've seen is and that. Oh, and the final piece that no one would have believed is that the, the leadership on the right, let's say Naftali Bennett's Yamina party, that in the 90s wanted to roll back Oslo. If you sit with them today and you say, Naftali, do you want to claim sovereignty to areas A and B? Those are the two parts of where the Palestinian Authority exists. That means all Palestinian cities are called A areas. Hebron's a little complicated. And B areas are the, the environs outside of the urban areas. And that that 40 percent you know, Israel will not challenge. And he goes, are you crazy, David? There's no way we're going to we're going to try for sovereignty in that area. That's Palestinian. So there's been a shift in the right. You know, the same right wingers who talk about how Oslo was doomed and Oslo failed are the same people who now don't want to challenge the premises of Oslo, uh, that the PA exists, that the security cooperation between Israel and the Palestinians exists. There have been a thousand reasons if Netanyahu wanted to scuttle, dismantle the PA, he could have done it easily. He didn't. There's a reason. And that is because he doesn't want Israel, to, I think, to be a, you know, a, a one-state solution, because that means that Israel's in charge of everything, and that will have implications uh, ultimately on who votes. And, and it, look, these are core issues that are objectively difficult when you're dealing with such emotionally and religiously charged issues like Jerusalem, when you're dealing with issues like the right of return. You know, the, people would rather, def on the Palestinian side, have rather defined success not by what is attained by but by what is not given away so okay i didn't give up the right of return that doesn't mean yeah but what about the refugees how they're living in these some of these places but they define it more this is what i didn't yield so i think some of the core issues are so complex and are so emotional to the sides and relate to their core identities that it's been easier for both sides to put them aside and, and focus on day-to-day -day -day cooperation with the Palestinian Authority. And that authority uh, is still, you know, is, is now 27 years old uh, for, since Oslo and 26 years old from the actual establishment of the authority uh, in Gaza by, um, by Yasser Arafat. As the famous diplomat Abba Ibn once stated, history teaches us that men and nations only ever behave wisely once they have exhausted all other alternatives. As for the 20-odd years since Oslo, there have been many attempts to move forward. The United States attempted to comprehensively solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict four times in 2000, 2007 to 2008, 2013 to 2014, and in 2020. All those attempts failed. So what can be done, when and by whom, until the parties themselves exhibit more determination to end the conflict? Well. We can endeavor to help people on both sides of the Green Line or aid and expand efforts already underway by some pretty remarkable people to address at least a part or a portion of untreated trauma. That we can certainly do. The good news to start is that the peace process today is more kinetic than any time in the last 20 years. But the Palestinian track still appears a 
peers to be stalled. Maybe it can be helped from the ground up rather than the top down. Or as, again, David Makovsky has cleverly and quite famously characterized it, there are at least four different approaches to consider. The inside out, by the parties themselves. The outside in, by other nations with a stated interest or stake in the outcome here. Top down by politicians. Or bottom up by the people themselves. Potential treatment approaches. Let's take an example from an entirely different theater of influence. The United States. As far back as the American Civil War, researchers were starting to draw links between trauma and longitudinal health. A popularly referenced study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2018, and later reported on by the Atlantic Monthly, found that the sons of Union Army soldiers who endured grueling conditions as prisoners of war were more likely to die young than the sons of soldiers who were not prisoners. Now remember, this was despite the fact that the sons were born after the war, so they couldn't have directly experienced its horrors personally. In other words, it seemed like the stresses of war were getting passed down through generations genetically. Here's a quote from that study. For those who survived, the harrowing experiences marked many of them for life. They returned to society with impaired health, worse job prospects, and shorter life expectancy. It also had an effect on the prisoners' children and grandchildren, which appeared to be passed down the male line of families. Now, the Civil War paper looked at thousands of veterans and their children, but the study focused on statistics. It did not examine genes. That's where the richer evidence appears to reside. And for that part of the story, we turn to a piece of science first published in 2013 in what is now a widely debated study on mice. We might have even heard the story. Carrie Ressler, a neurobiologist and psychiatrist at Emory, and his colleague Brian Diaz, published a study on epigenetic inheritance in lab mice. Their research first appeared in Nature, which is the most authoritative magazine on the market. Journal, forgive me. Ressler and Diaz trained mice to fear the smell of acetophenone, a chemical with a scent some compared to cherries and almonds. The researchers wafted the scent in a small chamber while administering electric shocks to males. The mice eventually learned to associate the scent with pain and shuddered in the presence of acetophenone even without a shock. I mean, I think the artificial scent of cherry is traumatic enough. It always reminds me of stale vape stains or urinal cakes in a stadium bathroom, but I digress. This reaction was passed on to their pups despite never having encountered acetophenone in their lives. The offspring exhibited increased sensitivity in the presence of its smell, shuddering more markedly than the descendants of mice that had been conditioned by a different smell or that had gone through no such conditioning whatsoever. Diaz and Ressler found similar evidence even in a third generation of mice, the grandchildren who inherited this reaction. The same even applied to mice conceived through in vitro fertilization, with sperm from males sensitized to acetophenone. Evidently, the response can also be transmitted down from the mother as well. But similar work has been conducted on the impacts of epigenetic trauma on people, humans. A 2015 study found that the children of Holocaust survivors had epigenetic changes to a gene that was linked to their levels of cortisol, which many of you will know is a hormone involved in the stress response. According to Rachel Yehuda, the director of the Traumatic Stress Studies Division at Mount Sinai School of Medicine, quote, the idea of a signal 
an epigenetic finding that is an offspring of trauma survivors can mean a lot of things, but it's exciting that it's there. Academics studying the Rwandan genocide have uncovered similar evidence, not at the genetic level, but the symptomatic one. Amit Shrira, a professor of psychogerontology at Bar-Ilan University, working with a team of academics elsewhere around the world, including a Canadian researcher who was a survivor of the genocide in Rwanda, published a report in the Journal of Psychiatry Research, demonstrating or showing that atrocities witnessed by Tutsi survivors in Rwanda could leave marks on their children who were born years later. Quote, the children of parents with complex PTSD suffered the highest level of secondary traumatization with symptoms related to the parental trauma, said Dr. Shrira. These children were born after the genocide, not during, but they still had nightmares about it and were more restless and more hypervigilant than the children in the other two groups they studied. Israel is certainly no stranger to stressors or to sources of trauma. Even if we just look at the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, in which all citizens are required to serve, men for three years, women for two, and many of them for longer periods of time as career personnel, the PTSD figures, even for a characteristically stoic culture, are pretty staggering. According to Professor Yair Barchaim of Tel Aviv University's School of Psychological Sciences and the Sogol School of Neuroscience, at least 5 to 8% of IDF combat soldiers experience some form of PTSD. And during wartime, that figure swells to 15 to 20%. That's one in five soldiers. And if you remember Rachel Yehuda at Mount Sinai Hospital, she was interviewed in Tablet Magazine and said, quote, I think it's very important to make sure that people understand that not all the effects of trauma are negative. What you have represented among children of Holocaust survivors is a preponderance of people that are therapeutic professionals, doctors, nurses, social workers, and psychologists. You have an extraordinarily large number of people that go into tikkun olam, fixing what's broken. I think that's also a response to cultural trauma. You can get stuck in the legacy of victimization, or you can say, no, I'm going to be part of the solution. Now, this application of epigenetic methods to the field of PTSD does represent an exciting frontier because it begins to account for individual differences in response to trauma. We're not all the same. We don't all respond or react or even recover in a predictable or identical manner. And that's based at least in part on environmental exposures that permanently alter gene function. But part of the reason this conflict is so intractable is because everyone in the region is suffering from PTSD, truly and deeply. And it appears that some or even much of this trauma is inherited genetically and generationally. In some instances, it's even renewed or re-triggered with new outbursts or fits of violence. This is a major issue to address, which was never really dealt with properly in periods past. That's why we believe that epigenetic trauma treatment does have an important role to play today and tomorrow. It may be unproven, but it is promising. And at scale, it could have transformative potential. I think that in general, perhaps one thing that is difficult to understand is that both the people that, that were the perpetrators can also suffer trauma. I think this is something that they start... I, I'm not a, cl a clinical psychologist, but I know that, that this is something that 
uh, clinical psychologists have begun to study and uh, it is also I think it creates some uh, contro- controversy because uh, because it is perceived as if it justifies the the people who de- who do the atrocities but uh, at the same time sci- from a scientific point of view this can happen so for example I know that one reason why the Germans moved from this uh, Uh, digging these uh, holes in the ground and killing everybody with shooting and, and then they moved to the gas chambers. One reason was that their own soldiers had trauma. And for me, I, I say that and I feel, oh, <laughs> so now I should feel sorry for the Germans who, and I'm not feeling sorry for them. I, I'm not, but uh, I don't care if they suffer trauma, but that's a fact and that's the reason why they moved. So, so perhaps... Um, Uh, so if, if the reason why I thought about it is that I, I don't know much about the civil war and but the, from what I know is that they, they, they fought over the right the South fought over the right to have slaves right so this is something that I cannot justify but at the same time I can acknowledge that the people who fought in this war suffered from trauma what has to therefore be considered in parallel To innovative approaches like these are, we admit, more conventional methods and techniques which have proven successful, at least in part, in other conflicts, or at least partly effective in this one. These are really tough issues, but there is hope, and there are approaches other than in-room therapy to address trauma and promote cohesive and collective efforts. Because let's face it, therapy alone cannot solve cultural or ethno-religious conflict. That's why we spoke with Nuri Schnabel, a professor in the School of Psychological Sciences at Tel Aviv University. Her specialty includes interpersonal and intergroup reconciliation and forgiveness, and belongingness or morality as a fundamental human need. On these subjects, she has more than 2,900 citations. Time, I think, is a healer. You can think about the relations between Jews and Germans. Could you imagine that the Jews and Germans will have uh, warm relations after what they did to us? But I think... Uh, oh, and of course, again, it's never just time. It's never just time. A lot of things happen in Germany. And of course, the U.S. intervened. And I think they were forced, in the, in the, not in the East Germany, but in the West Germany, they were forced to watch... Uh, documentaries about the Holocaust and learn about what they people they people did and uh, so so they were forced to go through an educational process that that taught them about the atrocities that they caused it, it wasn't something that was initiated by the Germans themselves but still I think that when I think about the relations between Jews and Germans it is quite unbelievable that uh, such a change happened. Well, according to Dr. Schnabel, it starts with recognition and remembrance, reconciliation and respect for minorities, supporting the afflicted, and a mass cooperative action. The We Are All Mary solidarity campaign with Jerusalemite women and reconciliation between aggrieved Gazan families whose children fought during the 2007 conflict is just one tiny example of efforts to heal injuries to Palestine's social fabric. There could be and should be more of these efforts, and we believe there will be. Positive thinking also has a role to play, not the secret famously skewered on stage by Dave Chappelle, 
That's no secret. But there is evidence, according to Gabor Mate, an addiction expert and author specializing in trauma, addiction, stress and childhood development, that a genuinely positive attitude based on real experience and authentic power does protect people. In a study of the British civil service, lower ranking civil servants had a greater risk of heart disease than their superiors. Low socioeconomic status makes it more likely that you will be exploited and that your needs will not be met. Of course, other factors like poor nutrition and poor housing conditions can also contribute to ill health. This is part of why we believe the economic piece, previously discussed, is paramount. It's critical to address this piece, either first or in parallel, to any renewed efforts at conflict resolution. We don't and won't make any assumptions here about the long-debunked notions of Miltonian trickle-down principles or the paramountcy of economic indicators over social justice. But there are so many issues to first resolve within Israel proper, particularly when it comes to the rights and needs of its own most vulnerable populations. And maybe they should take priority over the ever-elusive peace deal, even with neighbors like Palestine and Syria or Lebanon. Israel needs to care for its own citizens, including its own Arab, Israeli, and Palestinian populations. But we'll come back to this notion in the conclusion. Possible solutions. What we wonder is if you can induce trauma generationally and tie it to food or fragrance, like Kerry Ressler's research and Brian Diaz, who did it with mice. Remember the electronic shocks and the cherry smell? Well, could you do the reverse? Could you somehow reverse engineer trauma? We're not suggesting that someone start lacing food or spraying the skies with mood stabilizers, but every enophile or wine snob knows that Pinot Noir grapes, which are forced to fight for sun or struggle for water in rocky terrain, can produce stronger, more vibrant profiles, richer character, bigger bouquets. Now, that's no way to treat people. The question is, what can science offer us, either in terms of hope, ideas, or evidence, when it comes to more creatively treating trauma? Well, one approach to potentially consider, at least in the Middle East, is through food. It turns out that you are what you eat. Want an example? Take Okinawa, Japan, an island famous for its residents living longer than most people anywhere else on Earth. It turns out that Okinawans have a unique diet, even by Japanese standards, which consists of less traditional starches like rice and a much greater reliance on sweet potatoes. If the people of Okinawa have a diet aimed at centenary goals or longevity, could Israelis eat a diet aimed at living the happiest life possible? We're not talking about gorging on Krembo or Rugelach, even though they do each deliver a hefty and speedy dose of happiness. Remember, you know, indulging in sweets is about as dopaminergic as Instagram or Grand Theft Auto. But what if the Israeli diet was focused around serotonin? Is it possible to improve behavioral health and well-being just by adjusting people's diets to include foods that are naturally higher in serotonin, like salmon or nuts and seeds? eggs, poultry, soy, and tofu, or pineapple? Many of these are already consumed in Israel. So could you make these in higher concentration as regular staples in people's daily diet? It's possible. Not yet proven, but it's an idea. And if you could do it with serotonin, could it be accomplished with another major mood-governing neurotransmitter like GABA, which helps regulate sensations of calm and tranquility, or at least help counter stress? 
Foods that are naturally higher occurring in terms of their levels of GABA include green, black, and oolong teas, lentils, berries, and grass-fed beef, all available in Israel, plus wild-caught fish, seaweed, potatoes, and tomatoes, too. Might work. It's not likely that food alone can help people prepare the body politic for peace in the Middle East. But what if we had told you a hundred years ago, living somewhere on the western frontier in the States, surrounded by claim jumpers and wild bandits, rattlesnakes, cholera, drought, and a life expectancy of 35, with very few teeth, that the greatest health issues in the United States would someday soon be caused by there being too much food? They'd look at you like you were insane. Why bother with these hairball ideas like food healing or love farms, which you might remember from previous episodes? Well, even the more academic, conventional political science literature endorses the specific application of novelty to help get parties unstuck and just maybe move them toward reconciliation. Halperin, Oren, and Bartal, which, sure, sounds like players for the Jerusalem Hapoel basketball team, but who are, in fact, the authors of a critical piece of literature, wrote in 2010 that, quote, Flexibility usually results from the appearance of a new idea, one that is inconsistent with the heretofore held beliefs and attitudes, and therefore creates some kind of tension, dilemma, or even internal conflict that might stimulate people to move away from their basic position and look for alternative ideas. In the case of this conflict, they call the new idea an instigating belief, which contradicts the previously and strongly held beliefs by people that there is somehow a need to continue the conflict. For more on this, we spoke with Netta Oren, a visiting scholar at the School for Conflict Analysis and Resolution at George Mason University. I think at first I have to explain what are the beliefs that I think are the main obstacle for peace. And I think that uh, uh, the problem is that uh, when speaking about peace and especially peace nego negotiation, uh, the focus is usually very specific issues like the refugees, Jerusalem, the borders. And what is missed is the context, the full context and the, the psychological uh, beliefs that prevent, uh, I think both sides, but I focus on the Israeli side, uh, that are, you know, obstacle for peace. And uh, in my research, I identified uh, five, five main kinds of beliefs that uh, I claim that, uh, claim that they compose what I call the Israeli ethos which means uh, what defines uh, Israeli national identity and also what distinguishes Israeli society from other societies. My main claim is that the, the mere uh, possibility of peace means that uh, Israel will have to, to change its identity. Because if Israel, think about it, if Israel uh, fully assimilated into the Middle East, then you can't have this villa in the jungle ID. So, you know, you have to, to, to think what, what will happen with, with Israel. Uh, would it take on a Middle Eastern identity and uh, less committed to Western values? What, what, what will happen? 
then you have all the religious group who are very scared about interfaith marriage and assimilations of Jews and non-Jews. So again, what will happen with this Jewish state ID? And uh, there is also a fear what will happen with national identity and with national unity, because there will be always groups who oppose it. So, so at the end of the day, what you need is to establish a new identity, new national identity, if you want peace to, to succeed. Without that, and I think that that was, and, I, I, and in my book I, I, I bring some examples, uh, that was one of the main reasons why Oslo failed. Because Rabin tried, he tried to, to establish new identity. Uh, the Oren study goes on to suggest that the instigating belief provides motivation to reevaluate the previously held beliefs and, in fact, leads to flexibility with respect to the possible adoption of new and alternative beliefs. The instigating belief or beliefs may appear spontaneously in the minds of people and not under any special circumstances, but they usually come to mind as a result of external conditions that force people to reevaluate the previously held conflict narrative or repertoire. Now that kind of leadership scarcely exists at the moment, but it might soon. So are there other examples besides new approaches leveraging the literature on conflict resolution, alternatives to doping people through the food they eat? Well, one of the things we kept hearing from some members of our social set and even some out-there academics was, maybe you should consider psychedelics. Are you serious? You want us to what, put LSD in the water supply? Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Doing daily hits of acid certainly worked out well for Whitey Bulger, right? On that subject, you can actually read about it. You should look it up. The MK Ultra program, not a particularly proud chapter in CIA history. So people say instead, why not microdose? Yeah, no. No microdosing. That may be tempting to dose an entire population, but Israel is already at the center of 30 to 50% of all global conspiracy theories, and quote-unquote dosing the population wouldn't play particularly well on Fox or CNN, or on Al Jazeera for that matter. Willful ignorance of pain is no guarantee that today's status quo can or will hold. That's why we need to get innovative and start healing this trauma, because it's ongoing. Ignoring this pain may actually undo, or slow, or someday reverse recent progress if left unaddressed. You cannot ignore the Palestinian issue, and you certainly can't ignore the slow pace of social advancement shouldered or suffered daily by Israeli Arabs and other ethnic minorities. It might be tempting to many members of Knesset to punt on this issue, or for the ultra-Orthodox to await the arrival of the Messiah which we hope will come tomorrow, but that's not politically viable. We certainly hope and wish that the Messiah, he or she, or pick your favorite pronoun, would show up. Lord knows we've been waiting for thousands of years. But in the meantime, we each have a moral, ethical, and urgent personal responsibility to do what we can with what we have. In a 2003 article in Foreign Affairs, written by a specialist in violent histories of transgenerational trauma, it was suggested that, quote, societies that have been through mass atrocities need a public process of defining and acknowledging moral responsibility and constructing 
through language, symbols, and stories, a new sense of collective self-worth that can permeate public discussion of the past. We certainly saw evidence of this with the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. For more on this, we spoke with Nuri Schnabel. Wow, it's a difficult question. Uh, this is beyond my research. I can talk for myself that uh, perhaps the new, I would say, secular identity of people who want to live in peace, who want quiet, normal life, don't want to conquer more land, don't need to have national, I mean, national pride. It's not a bad thing to have national pride, but, but my national pride does not depend on land. It depends on what we do. And um, I do see uh, Israeli Palestinians, I see them as my students, that uh, I feel that they endorse this view, that they have uh, pride in their, in their Palestinian identity, but at the same time, this Palestinian identity is not necessarily antagonistic to the Israeli identity. And, and I feel the same about myself. I'm proud to be an Israeli, I'm proud to be a Jew, but at the same time, I don't see this as antagonistic to the Palestinians. We can live here together. So this would be the future, I hope. But can a truth and reconciliation process, something even distantly comparable to South Africa, actually work in Israel or in Palestine, where there have been atrocities on both sides? And both sides have shown an utter unwillingness to take any responsibility often using the other side's intractability as their excuse. Maybe it's still too soon, but would the attempt make a difference? If you recall the importance of the Eichmann trial for Israelis in the 1950s, which was a pivotal moment in the young country's history of coming to terms with its own Holocaust history, this kind of truth-telling or visibility could someday prove a key piece of national reconciliation, not just with the Palestinians, but even with Arab Israelis. Former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger once famously warned that, quote, the American temptation is to believe that foreign policy is a subdivision of psychiatry. Americans often apply that same logic to Israel. We're not advocating a specific foreign policy here, not for Washington, not for Jerusalem, not for Ramallah or for Gaza City. But we do believe these issues are critical to address before you can properly pursue rigorous foreign policy devoted to a just, enduring resolution to the conflict. This is about laying out an internal policy and structure to positively influence and impact the country's future external relations. Before you try to put together the broken pieces of society, and here we have to make no mistakes, um, torture, the debris of a conflict breaks apart society. It doesn't break apart just individuals. But to move beyond that, there has to be accountability. Uh, we have to learn the lessons of transitional justice, of restorative justice. Doing this, or even attempting to do this, can't be achieved in private therapy sessions alone. We know. Not even in group therapy settings. And it can't rely entirely on a single reconciliation committee. I think it's more comparable to treating cancer. It has to be a comprehensive approach that requires diet, sleep, interventional medicine, radiation, chemotherapy, nursing, emotional support, 
rehabilitation and recovery time, and even reconstructive surgery. But there is maybe one more thing to add to the mix here. You cannot start building peace the day after. It has to start today. And certainly efforts are underway. But we can't continue to punt or wait. There have to be new tools, new approaches, new programs, new provocations, some with the potential to succeed at scale. It's important to fail early, fail often, and fail forward. The Army knows this. The tech community practices this religiously. It's time for politics to make an effort at this. To start, I don't know, adding tiny grains of rice now. Eventually they'll become a pile. Is that some sort of Eastern thing, as the dude might ask? Far from it. If you'd like to read, think, or learn more about some of these issues, or contest some of what we've presented, there are a few additional resources we wanted to recommend. My Promised Land by Ari Shavit. How to Cure a Fanatic by Amos Oz. Dark Hope, Working for Peace in Israel and Palestine by David Shulman. And even the film Afterward. So just to sum it all up, there is no magic bullet. There is no curing ether. It's going to take the application of multiple tools, multiple efforts, the passionate, even pathological determination of multiple people to make real. But it also requires different thinking and different behavior than we've witnessed or even attempted in decades prior. And the whole purpose of the episode is to say, let's think about this differently. And let's do what we used to think had to occur tomorrow, today. So, with that, this is your host, again, Michael Phillips Moskowitz, thanking Mainland Media, thanking the New Institute, thanking our researchers, Bossy Rosenblum and Samuel Feldman. And last, but certainly not least, we have to thank the vertiginously talented poet, painter, musician, recording artist, Devendra Banhart for producing an entirely original musical score for this series. Aloha, and as always, shalom. <laughs>